Tonight, we're talking about evil. Does evil exist? Now, in, in Kabbalistic terms, the word evil is not used, but rather it's used, and you'll see this in the heading of your class two, in the words of Klipot and Sitra Afra. And we'll explain what that means soon. Now, let's get started. God is good. And the nature of God is to be good. So if we believe in a benevolent, kind God, we don't use the word God here because God is a bad rap, we're going to use the word Hashem. If we believe in a benevolent and kind Hashem, then why would this benevolent and kind Hashem create evil in this world? Free choice choice is what he says. Why would a benevolent, kind Hashem create evil? It would not make sense for there to be evil in this world. He wants us to choose him. It's a lot more powerful if we choose him than he's working for the course. So, so the, the assumption here is it's a lot more powerful if we choose him than us not being able to choose him, okay? Um, we need dark to know the light. We need dark to know the light, okay? Uh, I mean, God is many things. And like he's destructive, he's he has a dark side. And so I, I don't. So you, so you think evil should exist? It makes well, sense. No, it's not to say that evil, that, but to say that God is good and evil doesn't exist because God is good. I don't understand that. That's sort of but make if, sense. which means that if we make the, the, the assumption that by nature God is good, which means God wants benevolence in the world, I'll give you an example. God destroyed the world in the flood. How did God destroy the world in the flood? What was the mechanism? It was water. Water is considered a kind thing, right? People are using water for sustenance right now. Water is kind. God could have chosen fire, could have chosen earthquake, hurricane, other natural disasters, typhoon, volcano, that are all very destructive. But the flood, the mechanism that was used for the flood was water. We consider that, Kabbalistically, a mechanism of kindness. So even in God's destructive mechanism, there was a kindness there as well. So let's just start off by taking the premise that God is benevolent and good. So if benevolent and good exists, how can evil exist? The Greeks, they hated this. The Greeks couldn't imagine a God that was both kind and severe. They had everything to be separated. Kindness, severity, Everything was separated. You can't have the same God that's both kind and severe. But we believe that, like you said, that both the same God can be kind and severe. Now, we live in a world that is full of injustice and where most of the time the wicked have the upper hand. In classical Jewish philosophy, there are timeless questions by stating that God is good and it is his nature to do goodness. And he created the world to bestow goodness upon his creations. And the greatest possible goodness that God can bestow upon his creations is the goodness that he is himself. This is is what we believe is classical Jewish thought, is that the idea of creating this world was to bring goodness into this world, and the 
And the purpose of this world is to bring this world into a state of goodness. Now, in order to earn that reward, so that it should not be what the Zohar, what Kabbalah calls bread of shame, or unearned reward, God first placed us in the arena of free choice, where we have to make an effort to choose good over evil. Such choice is rewarded in the world to come, where the soul is the best of all physicality and basks in the light of the Shekhinah, of the godly presence, after honestly earning such rewards during the struggles in this world. The creation of evil is therefore a necessity in order to maintain the arena of free choice, the stepping stone to the ultimate reward. In this view, man's mission is to steer through the pitfalls and temptations of this world through the inheritance of the mitzvot. Now, so we're starting off with the premise that God is good and God wants a certain amount of benevolence in this world. In order for there to be that kind of benevolence in this world, there had to be evil. Does evil exist or is evil the absence of goodness? Which means, is there darkness or is darkness the absence of light? You think God created darkness. There are many philosophies that do believe that there was darkness created on its own accord. Regard, darkness is a creation of its own. Is darkness a creation of its own? It's the absence of light. Are you sure? Sure. What makes you so sure that darkness is the absence of light? I think darkness because is... For the, the, if the moon is not out, it's dark. The stars are not there, it's dark. Maybe so darkness must be a creation. Yeah. Right? Maybe darkness is the natural order and the natural state of the world. And you have to actually bring light into the world. So what I'm saying is, so it says it even in Genesis. It's exactly, he's proving my point exactly. That in, in the world's natural state was darkness. And God had to create the light. So is darkness a creation of its own? Yes. No. It says totally that God created everything, even darkness. Is it a creation of its own? The universe. We don't know. <laughs> Relative to what? What you're saying is a natural, natural mm -hmm. state. It exists. That's it. It, it was your white sheet of paper. That's what you're trying to say. Is it? Sounds like it. If uh, never said anywhere in in, in a sheet that darkness was created. So your point it was more about life was created. Darkness is the absence of light. Darkness was never created. Darkness does not really exist. Evil does not really exist. It doesn't, according to Kabbalah, evil does not exist. Actually, evil comes from the term of the Satan. It's become very Christianized today. Satan. It's not Satan. We don't believe in Satan. The Satan is an angel. The angel is created for the purpose of there being free choice. This particular angel, of which the Tanya calls the old fool, actually does not want to be listened to. 
It does not want to do its job. But it doesn't have a choice. It doesn't have any free choice. It's created to do a job, and it does its job very well. So the evil that exists in this world does not actually want to be evil. I'll say that again. The evil that exists in this world doesn't actually want to be evil. There is no intrinsic evil in this world. The evil that exists only exists so that there is a balance of goodness and the opposite of goodness. We don't even call it evil. The Torah will never refer to it as evil. You will not see the word evil anywhere. It's just the goodness and the opposite of goodness, uh, which we call klipot and sitra afra. We'll get into the Kabbalistic terms soon. I'm just giving, setting the stage for it right now. So, let's continue. Kabbalah emphasizes the view that the ultimate purpose of creation is to create a dwelling place for God in this world. So, God desired, and we've spoken in the past about emotional desires and what that means, but God desired a dwelling place in the lower realms. How is it desired? That dwelling place was achieved by creating beings that have the ability to have free choice. We can choose either way. We can choose either to follow good, the good path or follow the not good path. It's complete free choice. Nobody is deciding that besides us. There are two ways to go at all times, and maybe sometimes there's even more than two ways to go. God made a physical creation which conceals its divine source. The only reason why God is concealed in this world is so that we have free choice. Because if we knew what our purpose was, if we knew what our mission was, if we knew what it was all about, then we wouldn't have a problem. There would not be that duality of life. We'd never be conflicted. But we're supposed to be conflicted. We're supposed to be living in a world that's conflicted. Could you imagine that according to what we're saying here tonight, struggle is a value. When people are having a hard time with something and they're struggling, we say, good, wonderful. You are achieving your purpose in this world. If you're not struggling, you're not achieving your purpose in this world. The more you struggle, the, the greater your purpose. If you have it really, really hard, there must be something really amazing in store for you. If you have it really, 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 really hard, well, don't, please. See, I'll tell you what's interesting. There are people who have it really, really, really hard, and then when they overcome that struggle, they don't actualize their, their potential. Like they, they went through, I see it so often, where people go through all the struggles of life, and then they come to, the promised land, so to speak, in their own soul or mind or emotions, and they don't actualize it. They don't actually then go on to, to do great things. People who struggle hard, it's because we need to go through that process in order to actualize our potential in this world. And then once we're done, we have to be able to actualize our potential. That's our job. That's our place in this world. 
to, to, to be within this world, but stay above it. I'm going to move on, and then I'm going to take some questions later on. God places a soul within a body, specifically to refine and elevate the body in its portion in the world. That is our job, our soul's job. Why? You see, we could all be souls just floating around the world. By the way, there could have been a certain physicality in the soul, but that wasn't the point. There needed to be a differentiation between soul and body. The body is the physical, but the soul is the spirit. Does the, do the eyes see? Do the ears hear? Does the nose smell? No. It's the soul that sees, it's the soul that hears, it's the soul that smells. And while it's in this world, it's using the physical mechanisms of the body in order to be able to navigate this world. Now, although the soul will be rewarded for its efforts in the world to come, the ultimate purpose of creation is this world. The greatest achievement of the soul is to take the corporal and crass body whose inherent nature is animalistic and to use it to transform darkness into light and bitterness into sweetness. You see, the soul has the first great struggle right in the moment that the soul enters the body. And that is that the body is crass. The body is an animal. Now the soul that's refined the soul that comes from the essence of goodness, every single soul comes from the essence of goodness. That soul from the essence of goodness needs to take the crass body and refine it. The example that Kabbalah gives is the process of making parchment. If you take leather or, or the hide of the animal that's so thick, it's so dense, you have to make something so thin on which parchment will be made on that you can write on it. So the first thing you have to do, what do you do? Is you have to work through, you have to work it. Work it, very difficult. Do you, know how much, do you ever see the, a, a film or see it in, a, a live, someone actually making parchment? As a rabbi, you learn this because the Torah and the scrolls are, are all written on parchment. The process of making parchment is so complicated. To this day, it's still done because for religious items, they're using parchment. It's unbelievable how much stretching and stretching and overnight and they, put, they have to put certain chemicals and it's a tremendous, tremendous process. That is what the soul has to do to the body. That's the, the analogy. It's so much work. Every single body needs a tremendous amount of work. When the soul comes into the body, it's 99% animal, 1% spiritual. When does that change? Slowly, 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 over the course of 12 or 13 years. When we do, when we have our bat mitzvah, what we're actually doing in that process is what we're celebrating at the bar bat mitzvah, is we're celebrating the completion of the soul, of, this, of, of the spiritual, or what we call the godly soul. So now here is the basis. We have within us... I'm sorry that I'm not a great artist, but I will give a stick figure. We have within us a person. The, the body exists as it is. The body is, does not have an animating force. It is just the process that the soul uses while it's in this world. Now, 
there are two souls within the body. The first is the animal soul. The animal soul is, this is my really bad example of the heart. I, I apologize, but it's two ventricles and two atriums. The left, uh, here, the right ventricle, the right, this is good. You, 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 did I do okay? Any, sci any doctors or science students here? You're gonna, sorry. I don't know if you're laughing because it looks like something else. I don't know. Okay, so the animal soul sits in the left ventricle of the heart. Why is it sitting in the left ventricle of the heart? Because the heart, the left ventricle of the heart pumps the blood throughout the body. So it has complete mastery over the body. Complete mastery. From the moment the heart starts beating, which is the moment the soul enters the body, the heart starts beating on its own. That is the moment of birth. We actually call it, King David calls it, the valley of the shadow of death in Psalm 23. That, that refers to the birth canal. The birth canal is the valley of the shadow of death because at that moment is the moment between life and death. The heart starts beating and then the animal takes over. The animal at that point has complete dominance over the body. Where is the divine soul? The divine soul sits, sorry, this brain, yeah, in the brain. What happens when someone gets angry? The blood flows from the left ventricle very quickly to the, to the, to the brain. It's actually physically the animal soul taking over the bodies. So, what do we want to teach our kids? We want to teach our kids or ourselves from an early age that your animal needs to be tamed. There's an animal within you, and that animal needs to be tamed. How do you tame that animal? You tame that animal by making decisions from your mind. But we made a statement last week. We made a statement that there's some people who have heightened levels of emotional sensitivity. And there are some people who have heightened levels of intellectual sensitivity. We call that EQ versus IQ. So, if you're someone who has a heightened level of emotional sensitivity, what do you think is really happening? What's happening? Is it both? So people who have heightened levels of intellectual sensitivity, you would think that intellectual sensitivity means that they're making all their choices from their mind. It's not true. Studies have shown it's not true. Most people who are intellectuals make the most impulsive decisions. Because they're not allowing their emotions to manifest. People who have heightened levels of emotional sensitivity are actually making more intellectual decisions because they're allowing the emotions to manifest and to work through. So, our job is to tame the animal. How do we tame the animal? We tame the animal by training ourselves to take a step back and think. That's all we want to do. That's all we want to do. We just want to take a step back and think. Never want to act impulsively. Whatever we do, never impulsive. For example, there's so many of you that have raised your hand, and I'm purposely not answering your questions right now, because every question you're gonna ask right now has a certain level of impulsivity. Generally, I don't mind. But tonight, I'm talking, the entire basis of my talk is gonna be about evil and impulsivity. So one of the things is, 
What I want you to do is take all your questions tonight, and I want you to write them down, and I want you to marinate on them. And see, maybe your question will be answered. Maybe your question wasn't even a question. Or maybe, at the end of tonight's class, your question is going to have a whole different thing. It's going to have a whole series of questions, and that's where we're going to go through them. But if you're, you know, people are always worried, but forget the question. So write it down. What we want to do in everything in our lives is to take a step back. If it controls us, it's negative. If we control it, it's positive. That's how you know. If you have heightened levels of emotional sensitivity and it's controlling you, where you cannot live as a result of it, then it is wrong. That's not what we want. We want to always be in control. Now, we don't want to be in control to the point where we don't have any emotions. There are some people who subdue their emotions to the point where they become monotone. Could you imagine me giving this class tonight without emotion? Hi. How's it? So, there's a soul and uh, there's a heart and mind. Yeah. Here, there's a brain and a person and a heart, an animal, and there's God and me. It would never work. You'd be sleeping, you're already half sleeping. We need this, we need the passion, but the, the job of the heart, the job of the passion, is to be able to explain and describe and analyze and psychoanalyze all of the emotions and all of the thoughts, all of that stuff. That's the job of the passion. The job of the passion is not to control our lives. It's not to constantly put us in a state where we can't even function. Or the opposite, make us depressed to the point where we can't function either. They both have negative impact. They both have negative impact. So, what does this process look like? Well, the process needs to start off by understanding the opposite of process, which is evil. How do we understand evil? The first thing we said is evil does not really exist. Evil is just a creation that the angel, the satan, doesn't even want to do its job. It has no choice but to do its job because that is what God said. Do your job, and it does its job very well. And it puts us in a state where we are completely imbalanced. It's supposed to create the chaos. It's supposed to make us in flux. So now, why? Because in a, in a, an intrinsic Jewish value is struggle. I know this makes no sense because for years everybody was saying, they've been saying, to me, I, I, I've heard it for years, I don't know about you, I've heard it for years, struggle's bad. Struggle is wrong. Don't struggle. Kabbalah has a very different opinion. Struggle, more the better. The greatest people are the people who struggle. They're the ones who struggle and they tame their animals and they have the greatest purpose and the greatest mission in this world. There's no, per per there's no person who's coming to this world before you. There's no person who's coming to this world after you. And there's no person who's living during your life and that has your same purpose. 
If you have struggled a lot, it means that you have a great purpose in this world. And you have to pursue and look and find what that purpose is. Now is the time. It's only through the evil that we can find that purpose. If everything was always great, we'd be blah. There'd be no point of living. It's the stress. It's the fight. It's the pull that creates that purpose. We have to be able to navigate the world through that pull. But we need to use it and see it as a mechanism through which we navigate the world. You see, the funny thing is that we spend so much time trying to control things that we can't control. People that we can't control. Experiences. How is it possible that someone does something to someone else and as a result they have a bad day? No one ever called me up and said, stop thinking about me. How does something happen where as a result of what you did, I have a bad day? You have so much control over me that you became the author of my day? I'm living as a, uh, as a best supporting actor or actress in your life's narrative? If I am, then you better give me the best award. If I'm the best supporting actor in your life's narrative, how is it possible that you did something to me and as a result, I'm affected by it? Well, because we are social beings and that's our point of being in this world. We're not supposed to be hermits. Our purpose in this world is to be social beings. And being social beings, we're going to be in particular places and we are going to have, those things are gonna have an effect on us. Our life circumstances, are gonna have an effect. When we're let down, when we have a loss, when we have heartbreak, all those things have a tremendous, tremendous impact in our lives. But we have to remember, they don't really exist. They're just part of the stepping stone so we can rise higher. Heartbreak doesn't exist. Oh, what's so real in my life? You're telling me, Rabbi, come on. You're telling me it doesn't exist? It really exists, okay? Maybe you've never had heartbreak. That's why you don't think it exists. I've lived vicariously through enough heartbreaks. I can tell you. I know how it feels. But it doesn't really exist. The whole entire point of it is to be able to get you to the next level. So you have a choice. You can dwell and you can spend the whole time harboring it and commiserating it and live, literally live. You know what I think of it? This is my analogy to it. It's like being in the mud pit with the pig. You can spend so much time rolling around in the mud with the pigs. It's nice. It's, by the way, you ever see pigs rolling? They're very comfortable. They love it. They love it, but they're dirty. But they like being dirty. You can like being dirty. You can like rolling around in the mud with the pigs. Or you can say, that's not me. Enjoy your life, pigs rolling around in the mud. I've got other things to do. And you can rise above that. We, by nature, will be animalistic. Unless we make a conscious choice to rise above it. We have that ability to. But the first thing we're going to do, as we started speaking about last week, is we're going to allow the constellations, we're going to allow the mazalot to control us. We could do that. We could live our lives being controlled completely by the, by the constellations, completely by the mazalot. And we'll continue to say mazal tov to everyone, and happy birthday. 
or we can rise above it and we can become greater. But in order to rise above it, we have to know what, what's the animal that we're dealing with. And that is what I want to get to right now. What is the animal that we're dealing with? No, what is, what, what is it? What is evil? It doesn't really exist, but it exists so that we can be able to rise above it. But what is it? So that is what we have to understand evil. We have to piece it apart, we have to psychoanalyze it, and we have to work through it. So, the greatest achievement of the soul is to take the corporal crass body, whose inherent nature is animalistic, and use it to transform darkness into light and bitterness into sweetness. The soul itself is pristine and holy. It does not require rectification. The soul is always pristine and holy. But what ends up happening is it gets covered up, like a diamond in the rough. If you saw a diamond on the, on the ground, you wouldn't even notice it. If you don't know what diamonds look like in the rough. You ever see a diamond in the rough? It's, it's black charcoal. You can, you, literally, I can put it on the ground in, in a forest somewhere, you wouldn't even notice. You'd step right over it. We learned something fascinating from Jacob's Ladder. We learned that the soul's descent into this world is for the purpose of ascent. What did Jacob see? He saw the angels coming down and the angels going up. And the entire purpose of the soul's ascent into this world, descent into this world, is for ascent. It achieves something here that it cannot possibly achieve in the world to come. Despite being in the lowest of all worlds, one can overcome animal drives and passions to achieve the Almighty's purpose in creation. The soul therefore strives to perform true service of God, thereby fulfilling the will of Hashem and creating a Dirapatachtonim, which is a dwelling place in this world, an abode for God in this world. King Solomon describes it in the Song of Songs. He says, this state is called black, but beautiful. As the soul descends into the bleakness and confusion of this world, it realizes that its descent is for the purpose of ascent. Its descent into the body is dark, yet beautiful in terms of fulfillment of the purpose of creation. From this perspective, it follows that the presence of forces of evil pose the greatest challenge in the quest to create the dwelling place. The greatest, the greatest evil poses the greatest challenge to creating this world and making it a, a good place. And this is one of my favorite quotes. You can use this as your own quote and give it to you, plagiarize it as much as you want. It's the end of, the, the end of that paragraph. The greater the darkness and the stronger the forces of evil, the brighter is the transformation of the darkness into brilliance. You are, if you're in a space that's very dark, you have the greatest ability to create it into a world of brilliance. To create, from the greatest darkness comes the greatest light. Kabbalah uses the term kalipa to describe evil. Literally, kalipa means a peel or a shell, as in the peel of a fruit. So it doesn't really exist. Often, what, what does the peel do? It protects the fruit inside. 
So an orange is not going to retain its juice if it doesn't have the protective jacket of the peel. But when someone eats the orange, what do you do? You discard the peel. That's what evil is. It's there is the peel. Our job is to discard it. But we need it to protect what's inside. The peel is only there to preserve the fruit. The peel is only there to preserve the soul, to preserve the essence, to preserve the truth. The same is true with the existence of evil. We say inner will and external will. We call it primit haratzon and pitsoniotayot haratzon. When a person goes out into the world and gets involved with all the details of making a living, however, they're engaged only with the external will. The inner desire is to make money in order to do what he really wants. The existence of klipa stems from the outer will of God, whereas holiness stems from the inner will of God. So basically, what Kabbalah does is divides everything into this world into either Sitra Tikidusha, the side of holiness, or Sitra Akhra, the side of impurity. Literally meaning the other side, the side of Klipa. There's nothing that is between. Every thought, speech, and action, or creation has a source either in holiness or in Klipa. You have to decide in your life what is this? Is it good or is it evil? Is it holy or is it clip up? What is this thing that's happening right now? So, Zela Umadzeh, everything is mirrored. Every single thing could have a source, both in holiness and in evil. Everything in our lives. It could look like it's holy, but it's really evil. It could look like it's evil, but it's really holy. So, how do you know the difference between what's evil and what's holy? How do you be able to differentiate between the two? The side of holy of, of the, is the side is the indwelling and the extension of the holiness of God that rests only on something that abrogates itself completely from Him, either actually, or as in this case, potentially, as in the case of every single person who has the capacity to surrender himself. What is the difference? Here's how it works. You have the ability to 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 live a certain way. You. Someone give me an example. An example. What? Something that could be good or, or evil. Oh. Huh? Money. Huh? An iPhone. An iPhone. So, how do I know? Is, is the source of the iPhone holiness or is it evil? What do you think? Evil. Huh? What is the source of the iPhone? Holiness or evil? So, the source of the iPhone, we're going to call it Klipat Noga. Klipat Noga, Klipa is divided into two parts. Klipa is divided into two parts. It's divided into Shalosh Klipotat Meot, which means the three impure Klipot. The three impure Klipot do not have the ability to ever be transformed. There's not that many things that live in the three impure kibbot. Most things are not from the three impure kibbot. Then there is kalipat noga. Kalipat noga means 
that it has the ability to be used for evil or for good. The iPhone is clean but no go. How do you know if you're using it for evil or for good? How do you know? Hmm? No. You look at it, you can be good for evil. Does it control you or you do you control it? There's no choice. I decide to do what to do with it. It needs to be a tool for you to fulfill your purpose in this world. You cannot be a tool of it. It does not create the narrative of your life. You create, you use it to help your purpose and mission in this world. If for a moment it, you become subjugated to it, if you become a, a servant or a slave to it, then you defeated the entire purpose of it. It was supposed to make your life better, not for you to become a slave to it. So if you can't let go of it, if you can't turn it off, if you can't, it, it, it's there, it's got a great purpose. And in our world today, if you don't answer someone's text in two seconds, it's like, uh, what happened to you? Well, you don't like me anymore, what happened? You're ignoring me, you're ignoring me. You know how long it took you to answer me? Eight minutes, eight minutes, really? You know, there's other things going on in the world besides your text. No, but really, you know what, you know what, I know what you were doing. You were thinking about my text for so long. You see, that's what you were doing. And we start justifying and going through the narratives and the story. And what about the person? What do you mean? person doesn't like me. They don't like me? Look, they didn't answer me. They don't like me. What do you have against me? I was at an event the other night. And I looked at this guy, and I said, half jokingly, but I could see his face. So I'm like, I'm really sorry. He looks like it's about time. Okay, so we pursue. I'm, what happened? You don't know? No, I can't read your mind. What happened? And goes through this whole thing about how I didn't answer his email and he was waiting for my answer for his email. I never saw your email. What do you mean? You just didn't want to answer me. No, I never saw it. Maybe I skipped it over. Maybe it went to my junk mail. Maybe it... We, it's amazing. And he had an entire narrative all about why I owed him this apology that had absolutely nothing to do with me. But he, but he probably... I mean, you're talking about... How, how old do you think his email was? A year and a half. Now, I just had one question, and I had one question for him. I said, in a year and a half, you couldn't send one more email? Pick up the phone, text, something? You were harboring over this thing for a year and a half. It was you, to the point where you gave me these like dagger eyes until I said, I'm sorry, and you're like, it's about time. Is that how we want to live our lives? Is that the narrative of our lives? That's the world of Klippa. That's not how we want to live our lives. If you have something to say, you say it. Or what I like to do is give everyone the benefit of a doubt. And maybe they didn't get my email. Maybe, who knows? People have other things going on. They skipped it. It was the wrong day. They were going through a hard time. Who knows what it is? 
But we spend, we spend our time making assumptions. Assumptions are clip up. Assumptions, there's no assumptions that come from the side of holiness. All assumptions come from clip up. What else comes from clip up? Am I giving you some other? Clip Clipa, no clipa. Clipa, We're talking about clipa in general. Like Almost everything comes from clipa. Most things, there's very few things that come directly from the side of holiness or from the side of the three evil clipas. Most things come from clipa nova. But what comes from clipa? All those negative emotions, all those things that we harbor, all those things that we go through, all those things that take over our lives as if they're the only thing that exists. And that's what I want to get to. A very complicated thought. I have a couple complicated things I'm going to talk about. I, I'm going to preface my statement of this complicated matter by saying that when I talk about it, I'm not talking about anyone in specific. I'm talking about the general idea of it. It's not about a particular person. Maimonides starts off the third chapter of his introduction to Avot with a fascinating verse. He says, just like there are diseases and remedies for the body, there are also diseases and remedies for the soul. And the soul diseases are directly connected to the body diseases. They are one the same. So then he starts going on. Maimonides was a doctor. He starts talking about medicine. He says, generally, if you have a disease, there's something missing or damaged in the body. So what do we do? We prescribe some kind of prescription that fills or fixes that which is missing or damaged. He says, what if you have a disease? Not if there's something missing or damaged in the body, but there's something added to the body. A growth, a tumor. What do you do then? Well, if you're going to go to the doctor and say, I want a prescription, give me that. But if you add to something that's added to, then what are you doing? You're defeating the entire purpose of the, of the recovery. The only way to solve the growth is to take away from it. Now, let's fast forward. In 1952, Cancer was not what it is today. Not as prevalent as it was today. The Rebbe quoted this. It says something fascinating. He said, not that it's about an individual, but what spiritual disease exists in the world that allowed this physical disease to come into the world? What spiritual disease could have existed in the world that would allow something like cancer to come into the world? So what does cancer do? The Rebbe starts talking about 1952. Does cancer takes over the body as if it's the only thing that exists? You would think it's a small growth, but actually all the antibodies are focused on it. So what spiritual disease takes over the bodies if it's the only thing that exists. All the above, huh? Narcissism. Narcissism. 
the disease of narcissism. So this is a disease of our generation. The spiritual disease of our generation is narcissism. And the Rebbe continues talking about how our job in this world as a generation, our generational job in this world, is to not be narcissistic. Is to find ways of being selfless and to teach others and to teach ourselves and to teach our children and to teach those around us not to be selfish. And he said, when we stop being selfish, this disease will be obliterated from the world. Again, it's not an individual. It doesn't mean that the individual was selfish and that's how that disease happened. That's not what they were saying. I'm saying, how did it enter the world? We have a unique position and a place in this world. The world, the, being narcissistic, it takes over the body as if it's the only thing that exists. We have become so self-centered. In the years past, the Rebbe says, that people were self-centered, but they had a reason to. They had pride. Look at what I've done. Look what I've done. People today, they didn't do anything. Look at me. Look at me. What do you mean? You know what I did? Five minutes of fame. Look at me. I'm on TV for everyone to see. What does that mean? What happened to the world? Today we live in a world where people have pride for no reason. And what's our job? Not false humility. False humility is, I'm a nothing. You know that? Two, uh, two rabbinical students sitting on either side of the yeshiva hall. It's one o'clock in the morning, and they're screaming at the top of their lungs, Oh, ich bin garnished. Oh, I'm a nothing. And the other one's saying, Oh, ich bin garnished. Oh, I'm a nothing. And the other one's screaming louder, Oh, garnished. Oh, I'm a nothing. And they're going back and forth and back and forth. This guy comes in. It's all inspired. Look at these two rabbis sitting at either side of the study hall. They're screaming, oh, I'm a nothing. So he sits down, and he screams on top of his lungs, oh, I'm a nothing. They look at each other and say, he's really a nothing. That's false humility. False humility is where you say, I'm a nothing. Real humility is where you say, no, I'm a something. I have a unique purpose in this world, but my purpose is for others, to make this world a place for others. My purpose is to community. My purpose is to create this world into a place that is an abode for God, a dwelling place for God in this world. That is my place in this world. Not about me. It's not about me. The end all be all of creation is not me. And what happens is we get stuck and we get stubborn and we get very stuck. I always said I would never do that. I always said that this thing, and this is like non negotiable. What do you mean? Like, I know look, I had a really bad experience when I was younger, and because of that, I am not going there. That's it. That's not what I'm doing. I'm not doing that. That's false stubbornness. But what if? Times have changed, and what if we've gotten to a point where maybe it's possible? What if it's not what I thought it was going to be? What if the earlier version of myself didn't really truly understand who I was? And we jeopardize our purpose in this world by putting ourselves in a box that we put ourselves in years ago. We jeopardize what our place is in this world by putting us ourselves, we say, well, I, I don't do that. And we think that that's a value system or that's a non-negotiable. 
That's not a non-negotiable. That's a defense mechanism that we created at some point when we needed it and it never went away. That's not a real defense. That's not a real non-negotiable. That's just something we needed for a minute and it's lasted a lifetime. Kind of like a lot of relationships today. Sorry, a bad joke. <laughs> if you caught it, you caught it. If you didn't, you didn't. We've, got, we've entered a society in which we don't know what to do next. I, right before this class tonight, I was teaching a group of university students. And in the middle of the class, I just looked at them and said, so, who are you? Like, what's your, what, what, what are you, what's your place in this world? And, and they were just like dumbfounded. Like, what do you mean? And we basically came to the conclusion that there's, I had a group of like, of university students who are really living, I would say unconscious. They're totally passive about their lives. Kind of going in the way, going in the wind. What's happened to our world? I thought we were unique. I thought we finally entered the era where we could be anything we want to be. There's no one that's stopping us. We have, we're not worried about where our meals are coming from tomorrow. We're not worried about basic necessities that they were worried about. We, we, we live in an amazing time in a free country where we can really be anything we want to be, whether we're male or female, whether we are of any race or religion or creed, we can do anything we want. And here we are, living passive lives. What happened? We had, you know what our grandparents, I mean, I'm not putting the guilt on, but I'll put the guilt on. You know what our grandparents would have done for this? <laughs> we take it for granted now. It's for granted. We don't even stop thinking. I'm it. I think we've stopped to think and forget to start again. <laughs> What's happened to our society? What's happened to our world? And I'm not here to, to that's the end of my, uh, of, of, of my negative, but you, you get the point. But we can start at any time we want. At any moment in time, we can start. So now, I want to go through one more little piece about Klippa, and then the I'm going to go. I think the technology is too fast to you know if you're asking that. I think technology is the answer. The technology is too fast? It's interesting. These people The technology is an amazing thing. We have stuff. Could you imagine? I was thinking the other day. Remember the encyclopedia salesman? Yeah. Remember the encyclopedia? I love those guys. Because it comes to the door selling the Encyclopedia Britannica or the World Book. It wasn't even that long ago. Could you imagine if we said to them, oh yeah, you know, I'm going to have this little device and I'm going to be able to put it in my hand and it's going to have like... I don't know, the version of like maybe a million books that you have. They say that if Wikipedia was to be put into encyclopedia books today, it would be something like 940,000 books or something, something crazy like that. Could you imagine someone coming here from just 100 years ago and saying that to them? You remember how we used to do our reports in school? Not even 100 years ago. Remember how we used to do our reports in school? <laughs> Unbelievable. And I wasn't in school that long ago. 40 years. Not even 40 years ago. Not even 20, 25 years ago. 25 years ago. Huh? Don't make it older. <laughs> <laughs> so, let's go. So we have Klippa Noga. 
and we have the Shalosh Kutla Tameot, the three impure Klippot. Now let's go into the Kabbalistic element of it. After I go into the Kabbalistic element of it, I'm going to go into perhaps demons and other types of evil that are part of the three impure Klippot. We'll talk about them for a bit, and then I will take your questions. One of the greatest examples that we have Kabbalistically of all of this kind of evil is the, the Ezekiel, right in the beginning of the book of Ezekiel, there's this, pro, this prophecy, and he tells this story. It's actually the story of Mount Sinai, what happened. It's his vision of what happened at Mount Sinai. And he says that there was a whirlwind, a great cloud, and a blazing fire. Those are what we call the three unclean people. Klippat Noga is called translucent. From the three impure people flow and derive the souls of all living creatures that are non-kosher, as well as the existence of all forbidden food, vegetable kingdoms such as Urla, the first three years of fruit of the tree, and the existence and vitality of all actions, utterances, and thoughts pertaining to the 365 negative commandments and their offshoots also flow from these people. Everything in the realm of holiness has an opposite in the realm of the clipot, of the profane. Everything in the physical world has a spiritual counterpart from which it derives its existence. Everything. The spiritual world and the physical world are exact connected. They are exact counterparts. Everything. Everything in this world has... You eat challah, the challah has a spiritual counterpart. What is that spiritual counterpart? We can go into the ramifications of what the challah represents spiritually. No, challah is an easy one. What about this table? This table has a spiritual counterpart. There's a spiritual force that animates this table. What about the fruits that you can't eat for three years are different from, uh, from, the, no, from the three from the three Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Arla, it's called. Wow. Yeah. The animal soul and the existence and vitality of the entire inanimate and vegetable world, permissible for consumption, and the existence and vitality of every act, utterance, and thought in mundane matters that contain no forbidden aspect, whether performed for the sake of heaven or not, all stem from Klippat Noga. It can go either way. It can go to evil or it can go clip up Nova, it can go to evil. It's nothing. It's just it's just well. It can go either way. God created one thing opposite the other. So every single thing, for example, the opposite of the animal soul is a divine soul. Well, everything has an opposite. And I think it's such a great way of making choices in our lives. Some so often we get to a crossroads like, I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. I don't know which way I should go. Should I go this way? Well, I only have one option. You never only have one option because everything has a counterpart. So you have to go and search for the counterpart of whatever is going on. So you have a very difficult choice to find what is the counterpart of that choice. There's always another opposite to the choice that we have to make. What I'm going to... I'm going, to, I'm going to stop here a second, then I'm going to take all your questions. I see a lot of you have questions, and I'm going to go into uh, angels and demons and all that good stuff.
What do you think? What are your thoughts? It's very theoretical tonight. Yeah. How do you combat narcissism? As you said that's the biggest disease in today's times. How do you combat that? I'll answer that in a second. What's your, it's okay? okay? How do you combat narcissism? What is the opposite of being narcissistic? Selfless. Selflessness. You can't make somebody be selfless. No, no, you do selfless acts. Without putting yourself into the... It's completely selfless. For no other reason than for that sake. It's very interesting. The, a woman, the, the, the anniversary, the 24th anniversary of Rebbe's passing is this Shabbat. So I'm thinking a lot about the Rebbe now. So I've been, I've been spending the past week doing different preparations and kind of going over some of my favorite teachings of the Rebbe. So I, one of my favorite things I used to do is, so the Rebbe used to see thousands of people on a Sunday. People would come by for years. The Rebbe would stand, even as an older man in his 90s, and he'd hand out dollar bills to people, and they would get 30 seconds or 20 seconds. A woman comes by the Rebbe, and she says that she's looking for a shidduch. She's looking to get married, and she's tried everything. And the Rebbe looks at her. It says, it's in the video, it says, I want you to go find a needy bride, and I want you to become her slave for a month. It doesn't say they're slave. Use a different term. I'm paraphrasing it. I want you to literally do anything she wants you to do for a month. She says, I don't even know where to find her. So the rabbi says, there nothing stands in the way of the will. There's a will, there's a way. You'll find someone. Look around, ask around, ask people. This whole thing is happening in a matter of 30 seconds. So that's it. That's it. And the rabbi often would say this to people. You're looking... What was the Rebbe really doing? And I've thought about this so many times since I've seen that, and I've watched that video a number of times. What was the Rebbe saying? The Rebbe was saying to her, do something completely selfless. The act of doing something selfless is such an amazing, amazing thing. Anyone who's ever, if you've ever experienced that, you do it not for any, anything, anything in reward. Just completely selfless. The, if you want to combat narcissism, you have to start, the, the world in general, we have to start doing things that are completely selfless. Completely. You think that's going to change someone else? It's changed us. Completely. And not, you know, it's very easy to go and volunteer. I don't know if people go volunteer because it's social or they go volunteer. And I'm talking about something completely selfish. No one knows. No one knows. When I was a kid, my grandmother was already older. She used to pick me up in her station. She had a whole thing of envelopes that she had prepared. And we would go by people's homes and we'd slip them under the doors. She had a whole list of people that she used to go and slip envelopes under the doors. They don't even know. They only they found it after she passed away because the envelope stopped. We have to start as early as we can with our kids, teaching them selflessness. Because the, the challenge of narcissism is so strong in our society today. And there's no reason why we can't start with ourselves now. There's no 
Today is the day that we can start and we start doing selfless things. What was your question? Uh, I was wondering if you have any thoughts about the difference between impulsiveness and spontaneity in improvisation. It's very good. It's very good. So, spontaneity is the mind is in control and it uses the heart to channel its spontaneity. Impulsive is impulsive where the heart is in control. There's a lot of people who make impulsive decisions and they regret them later. People who make spontaneous decisions don't regret them later. And over time, we learn how the difference between, between that. It's something that only can be learned through experience. And I'm sure there's many times in our lives that we think we're spontaneous, but we realize later that was a really bad idea. And sometimes that we act impulsively and ends up turning out to be good. So we, in Kabbalah, is very concerned about what the source is. Is the source kripa or is the source holiness? Now there's many things that can go either way. So anything that can go either way, we have to make sure that the intention is correct. So spontaneity will come with the proper intention. Um, the example that's given in Kabbalah is the example of the four rabbis that entered the orchard, the pardes, and one went crazy, the other one became a heretic, the other one died, and one came out. What does it say about him, Rabbi Akiba? It says, Nichnas b'shalom, yatsa b'shalom, that he went in with peace, went out with peace. So we learn from that that the most important thing that we should do in our lives is that every situation we should enter it with peace. Everything in our lives should start off by entering with peace. If we're entering it from a place of confusion, if we're entering it from a place of uncertainty, if we're entering it from a place of trying to get back or revenge, None of this ever comes out to be anything that's good, even though it was good for a moment. See, often our lives, our lives are made up of a lot of little moments of pleasurous things. The problem with pleasure is that there's no end to it. The problem with klipa is that there's no end. It never ends. The more you have, the more you want. And the more you get, the more you want. And then you constantly, constantly, just no end. Just keeps on going. How do you do that? How do you end that process, that cycle? Well, you have to, the difference between spontaneity and impulsive. To stop, the, the people who are impulsive, there's no end to it. But you can find a way to use that impulsive nature and create a certain sense of spontaneity in the logical, thoughtful things that we do. Anything else? Great. So now let's go into the second half of tonight's talk, and that is demons. There are... Yes? So I was curious, because um, when we heard Scotter, when he sees a struggle, does he struggle? So it's a great question. When, when we hurt, when we struggle, is God struggle? So the Talmud has a big debate about this. Whether, um, what, what is our relationship? So it seems to be based on the Talmud that yes, that God, um, and the example is used is destruction of the temple, that ever since this destruction of the temple, that God does not have any true joy because we are still su- suffering we ended up going into exile. As long as we're in exile and we suffer, God also suffers. Now, I'm going to add to your question. Let's think about it 
God is omnipotent. God is unlimited. Why does God have to suffer? God is beyond suffering. What is, why is, what is God doing suffering with us? What? Because uh, uh, empathy? Good therapist? What? Tell me. Why does God have to take on our suffering? I will be suffering in silence. Thank you very much. Leave me to suffer. I'll, I'll, I'll be fine. Like the old Jewish mother, when her son calls, says, I haven't eaten in three days. Why? I was waiting for your call. I didn't want my mouth to be full. But if God's the creator of everything, why would God take on our suffering? That's my question. If God's the creator of everything, why does God take on our, our suffering? And He's creating the suffering. And why is and God's creating the suffering? It's kind of like a joke, almost. No, sometimes, the moment we suffer, like when it happens, that's created from God. But in the future, if we continue to be stuck in that moment and suffering, that's not God, that's us. Very good. Suffering is a choice that we have. Yeah. Pain is not a choice, but suffering is a choice. Pain is, happens for a moment, suffering happens for a lifetime. So pain, God has pain with us. But suffering is a choice. We can choose to suffer or not. We can choose to be victims, or we can choose to take our lives into our hands and say, no, I'm not going to be a victim. It doesn't mean we don't have to go through that process and go through the therapy and go through all that great. It's great. It's important. We have to go through our lives. We all have our package. We all have our pack away. That's okay. But we have to remember that our purpose in this world is to make this world better. We can't make this world better if we're not better. We can't uplift others. We can't uplift this world if we are not better ourselves. Anything else? So, are there demons? Are there evil forces that we cannot control? There are many, many stories. Many stories throughout the ages of evil forces. I'm going to choose three stories tonight. And through each of those stories, I'm going to tell you a little bit about demons. The first story is a story that happened in the city of Posey about 250 years ago. The rabbi of that city, his name was Rabbi Baruch Batlan. This story is written in Zichronot, the previous rabbi. Baruch Batlan has a problem. A couple dies. They're childless. Their home becomes invaded by demons. Why does it become invaded by demons? Because they were evil people. The way that it's described, their evilness, is that they would fight so much amongst one another that the entire neighborhood knew about their problems. They were, they were disgusting, despicable people. They created a void when they left this world. That void was taken over by demons. Listen to, I'm describing it to, this is the first step. Demons can only live in a void. They cannot live where they don't, they, they're, where, they, where they're not accepted. There are people who create voids. What is that void? That void is through people living for a certain amount of time, a long time, 
in the world of Klippa. They create a void of which demons are allowed to enter. Is it okay that I'm going here? Did I'm tell me if I'm going too far, because I may go too far from some of my stories here. Nobody wants to walk down that street. People are scared. People move away from the homes around it. That's how scary it is. Barfal doesn't know what to do. He goes and travels to the Baal Shem Tov. His rabbi. The Baal Shem Tov listens to the story and he says, I want you to create a, a, a particular situation. Tells him what to do and he says, I'm going to come. Roshantov comes to that town, town of Posen, with Rebarak Batman, another rabbi himself. They make a court in the home, and they call upon the demons. The demons say, we don't speak to people. The head demon, in this particular story, is the famed demon Ashmedai. We even know some of their names. It's written down in the Kabbalistic books. They don't speak to people, he says. I call upon from the source of your creator. You and I have the same creator. You must speak to me now. And they go in the back and forth. They're not going to go through the whole back and forth they go through. But at the end, he's able to get rid of the demons from the home. They make the home into a synagogue. They bring the Torahs there, they bring children to study there, and that is the end of that particular story. So what we learn from this story is that through evil deeds, we are able to create a void for, for these demons to live. Now, there are people who also create a void for demons to live within them through evil thoughts and through evil speech. So remember we started talking about people who have heightened levels of emotional sensitivity? People have heightened levels of emotional sensitivity to be very careful about their words. Their words create good angels and create bad angels. People have heightened levels of intellectual sensitivity, their thoughts create good angels and bad angels. And both of them, their deeds create good angels and bad angels. Last week we just spoke about the good angels. This week we're adding another component. We also create the opposite, right? Everything in this world is balanced. So if we're going to create good angels when we do good things, we're also going to create evil angels when we do evil things. How do you get out of that void? How do you get out of that void? Yeah. It's mm -hmm. a good question. So I'm going to go on to the next story. And hopefully you'll be able to understand how you get out of that void through the next story. Can I ask a question before sure. you go on? If there's a balance when you're creating good, um, does evil then enter to keep that balance? No. Mm -hmm. No. If you're creating a good angel, every single mitzvah we do creates an, a, a representative good angel. When, if we have more good angels than bad angels, we have more representative angels that are good, and that's the way it is. The balance only exists in the world, but evil doesn't really exist. So because evil doesn't really exist, we don't necessarily have to ever make 
those angels that are evil angels. Because they don't really exist. They're just there to balance out, to give us free choice. The symbol of being, what needs to be righteous is someone who's only creating good representative angels. As a result of a tremendous amount of self-refinement and work. That's the Kabbalistic interpretation of righteousness. So the next story, I'm going to try to tell it in its very, as quick as possible. The story starts off, it happens 500 years ago, the times of Rabbi Yehuda Lowy, the Maharal of Prague. He had a student, his name was Rabbi Aaron, Rabbi Aaron had an inn. He couldn't pay the landlord, and as a result, the landlord threw him into a pit. He would, his wife gave birth in the pit. So he actually started singing songs, and these guards in the pit would send them down food. A number of months later, his wife gave birth in the pit. They had a boy, they named this boy Shlomo Ephraim. Shlomo Ephraim, uh, the, 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 the duke, what he would do is, after a while, he'd make a big celebration to cover up the pit after the Jewish family would die. This is one of his things, time period. He, cover, he makes a celebration, they all come down half drunk to cover the pit, and the people are still alive and there's a baby. This Duke had never had children, wanted the child, basically said to this Jewish family, either you give us the kid or I kill you and take the kid. So he killed him and took the kid. Changed his name, baptized him, changed his name to Christopher. He got a private teacher's child was a child prodigy. At the age of 12, he starts having dreams. In his dreams, his father comes to him and tells him that he's Jewish and he has to go to Prague for his bar mitzvah. Night after night after night, he has these dreams. Till finally, his father says, if you don't go tomorrow to Prague, I'm going to take you there myself. As the story goes, the next morning, he woke up in Prague. He actually was living in the city of Lundjitz, which is quite a distance from Prague. The Duke finds out that his kid is missing, his kid ran away, and starts going to various magicians and psychics and people to try to find out and locate his kid. Finally, one of the magicians locates his kid in Prague. They go and they travel to Prague. In the meantime, he now enters the yeshiva, the Maharal of Prague, and starts learning. It's the first time in a while that he was really mentally stimulated. He loved it, but didn't really believe everything of what was going on. The, the, the psychic and the duke traveled to Prague to try to get this kid and save the kid. I'm really telling a very long story, as short as I can, because I'm trying to bring out a point here. If you want, I can, one day I can tell you the whole story. It took me about an hour and a half to tell you. There's a lot of details to it. They travel. That night, the Maharal, tell, the Maharal takes the Shlomo Ephraim, Christopher, into a study, and he says to him, tonight you must stay in the study hall and you cannot leave. I'm going to have two students of mine, they're going to stay there with you. You cannot leave, something terrible is going to happen. That night, they're sitting there in the study, in the study hall, wagons pull up with the Duke, who he thinks his father is, and the psychic, 
and they cast a spell on him, on the students, and he goes and they take him back. It's a whole back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Finally, he ends up back by the Maharal, and the Maharal tells him that his soul is very high, and that there's an evil cloud that's above his soul. He has to be very careful not to ever go alone into a forest, because demons are are, uh, exist with people in the forest where there's people who are alone there. You can never say so. We learn from that that we don't go alone into a forest. To this day, we have a tradition not going alone in the forest. We ever want to go for a hike somewhere, you go with someone else. And the demons cannot approach two people, only one person, because it's two good souls against one evil soul, and, and evil cannot unite. We also learn from that that evil cannot unite. Evil is always separate. Good is able to unite. Evil is always separate. We know that in life as well. One night, he takes a walk in the forest by himself. And he's approached by an evil, by a demon. Story goes that the demon gave him a book. And as he started, he, he hides the book. And won't go into all the things, a number of things happen. At the end of the story, the Maharal finds the book, takes him into the mikvah, into the purification waters. The boy. The boy goes down to the purification waters, into the mikvah, and when he gets out, the entire, all the evil forces surround the mikvah, the whole mikvah had gone up into flames. He was in the water during the time, and said that they were all consumed in the flames. Flames consume demons. Specifically, flames that are intertwined. One of the secrets of the reason why the Abdallah candle is intertwined is because it consumes the demons of the weak. There's other reasons also for it. Um, you, you, you guys ask for this. You don't have to know it if you don't want to. <laughs> this young prodigy ended up becoming um, a very, very great scholar. He wrote in a commentary, one of my favorite commentaries in the Torah, called the Klei Yakar. It can be found in all of the great Mikrofudolot, uh, all of the commentaries in the Torah. It's a beautiful, beautiful commentary of which he puts a lot of science and history. You can see he has a whole background that's beyond just the Jewish texts because he was raised by this duke. And uh, it's an amazing, amazing story, the story of the childhood of Shomokfrayim ben Aaron, who was known today as the Kayaker. So from this story, we learn a number of things. We learn about not going alone in the forest. We learn about the evil, um, that evil attacks us when we're alone. It's also, by the way, evil can attack us when we're alone in our thoughts. And when we're alone in our space. Huh? Which means there are some people, there are some people who rather would be alone when they are depressed. So we're, we're, when they're feeling down. When you're feeling down and depressed, you must fight the demons and go out. You must just go out. Go into the street. You have to be around people. 
We are, our job is to be moving. Our job is to be around people. That is our place in this world. No matter how terrible this world is, no matter how much life has gotten you down, if you want to stay in your bed with your cover over your head, that is not your place in this world. You must fight that urge and get out. Hmm? FOMO is good. FOMO is great. Fear of missing out. Just get out. It doesn't matter what, for what reason you're getting out, just get out. Hmm? Just with your feet. Vote with your feet. Just walk out. Make sure someone knows where you're going. Or, or go, go somewhere. Just, just we, we have to, you know, and again, everything is balanced. So we're going to find there's certain times in our life that we become. Now, the third story I'm going to tell you is a story that I heard that happened not long ago. This is, I'm hoping, will kind of bring it all together. The person I heard it from, later when he said, when he told it to me, that he will deny that it ever happened, though I've asked him on occasion, and people have asked him, I'll tell you the story. I, was, I spent a lot, quite a bit of time, my wife's in Minnesota, I spent some time in Minnesota, and in Minnesota there's a rabbi, his name is Rabbi Manus Friedman, who comes here on occasion to to speak, he tells the following, he told, he told me the following story. 1988, he was sitting in his office, it's 11 o'clock at night, and he gets a phone call. Rabbi, do you do exorcisms? He thinks it's his brother who's playing a practical joke on him. He says, yeah, yeah, sure. He says, my wife is possessed. <laughs> Can I bring her to do an exorcism? <laughs> so sure, when can I come? When do you want to come? Can we come now? Sure. We'll be there in a half an hour. He hangs up the phone. Calls his brother back and says, that was funny. He's like, what are you talking about? He's like, you just called me, didn't you? He's like, no. He's like, come on, that was one of the best practical jokes you've ever played on me. That was great. I didn't just call you. Come on. <laughs> Half an hour later, there's a knock on his door. <laughs> yeah, he answers the door, and there's a man standing there, when a woman standing there. And he realizes that there's no jokes. Now, his office at the time was this really old mansion, and it was like really, I remember it, it was really special. They walk in, and he says, clearly I can see that this woman is living in a different world. Sit down in his office, and he says, I'm really sorry. I don't know how to say this to you, but I don't do exorcisms. But uh, my Rebbe, I'm going to call New York right now, with the Lubavitcher, 1988. Your Rebbe was still alive, and I'm going to ask for a blessing. He calls the office of the Rebbe, and they put him on hold. The secretary of the Rebbe comes back and says, the Rebbe told, gave an answer, that this woman, she must keep kosher and be very strict about keeping kosher, and everything will be okay. A few months go by, 
using their kimono. So you call them up. How's everything going? Oh, it's much better. Are you keeping kosher yet? Yeah, keeping kosher. But not, you know, a little bit, you know, the best we can. Minnesota, what do you want from us? But I'm going to this healer out in northern Minnesota, and she is amazing. So he says, can I go with you? I want to meet her. Really? He said, yeah. So she said, yeah, I spoke to the healer. She wants to meet you too. Right. So they go, they travel two hours north to this healer, somewhere out in wherever. And the healer does her thing, and the rabbi's waiting outside. And she comes out and she says, you know, Rabbi, I want to tell you something very, very interesting. He said, what I do in order to heal people from being possessed is I have to call on their master soul. Every single soul has a master soul. We believe this in Judaism as well, that there are 600,000 master souls, and each one of us come from one of those master souls. And in order to be able to be healed, we have to call upon the master soul. So she says, it's very interesting. Most master souls lived 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago. But this woman, her master soul is living today. It's alive. The first time in the history of me doing this work that a master soul is alive. And it's a man, an older man who looks just like you. So he reaches into his ball and he pulls out a picture of the Rebbe. He says, look like this man. He says, the woman goes white. This is him. This is her master soul. How do you have a picture of her master soul? Who are you, Rabbi? He says, no, 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 not what you think. It's my Rabbi. Can you speak to him? Of course, we spoke to him already. You spoke to him already? What did he say? He said that she has to be very careful about keeping kosher. So the healer turns and says, what the flippin' heck are you coming to me for when your master soul told you what to do? Are you doing it? She said, well, not really. The best you know it's Minnesota. She said, your master soul told you how to deal with this. Go do it. And she did it, he says. So everything was fine. So now, wandering souls. Let's start with the wandering souls. We spoke about this a bit, but we're going to get into it a little more. How do souls possess other souls? Remember, you got to create the void. Some people that have a void, and they create a space where other souls can enter them. They can become possessed. We call it a dibuk, a wandering soul. So there's a couple ways that happens. Number one, now I'm going to talk about this uh, next week, is it? Two weeks from now. I'm talking about the afterlife. So when I speak about the afterlife, I'm going to talk about the process between life and death. I'm not going to go through all that right now. But I'll save that for two weeks from now. But there's actually, we know a lot about the afterlife through Kabbalah, and I'm going to talk about it a lot. There are certain instances where a soul leaves the body and the soul cannot find peace. And the soul wanders. It has a lot to do with the mourners and the people who the soul leaves in this world. Uh, one of the reasons why is because they were not properly mourned, the Kaddish was not said for them, they wander. And they can possess. They can possess until something happens. Okay, are you talking about this? Souls can possess souls. No. If a soul possesses another soul, there's a couple 
of things. So there's, there are people who, in this world, even to this day, who get possessed. So the first thing that they have to do is they must make sure that they are, they're, they're, you back up before I start going into all the if, if, a, if a soul possesses, we have to find out why that soul is possessing that person. There's a reason why. There's usually a connection between the person and the soul that possesses that person. Usually the soul possesses the person because there's something that person can do the opposite. Repeat that again. The soul possesses the person because there's something that that person can do in order to help that soul. Now, it would not make sense. Now, here's the opposite side. The person who's possessed if they could really do something to help that soul, they should not be getting possessed. So, from the soul's perspective, they're possessing the person because they think the person can help them. But the truth is, the person who they possess cannot help them. From the person's perspective, if they have created that void where the soul can possess them, then they did something wrong. It's not possible physically, for a person who is in a healthy spiritual state that could really truly help the soul that is possessing them to possess that person. So if you're in a healthy spiritual state, which we'll talk about in a second, so it's very important. There are people, and I have met some of these people, who allow souls to possess them. How do you know? Hmm? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about it in a second. Okay. You really want to go here? You really want to go this far? I'm not sure we want to go this far. I think I like you. <laughs> I will do a, I'll do a separate session for those of you who want to know about. I'm just giving you a little bit of an overview. I'm not going to go that far because that would require um, knowing maybe some things you may not know. What's important to note is that, so there are people who allow souls to possess them. Those people are doing something very wrong. The purpose of that soul is not to be in this world. Soul should not be wandering. It's a tremendous, tremendous pain for the soul to wander and possess a person. So what we have to do is we have to find out about want a particular soul. If you know a particular soul that Kaddish was not set for, we make sure that Kaddish is set for them. If, uh, if we know of a particular situation of which a person was not properly mourned, if there was a certain resentment or hatred or harbor. So one of the things that we do before burial is we ask the soul for forgiveness, the person for forgiveness of anything we did wrong. We're supposed to do it publicly, we do it privately, the mourners do it privately. During that time of asking for forgiveness, um, we know that the soul has entered the world of truth, so they know everything is true, even if there was particular hatred things in this world, that everything should be good. So for most people leaving this world, there's, if everything is done properly, there should be no reason for the soul to wander. So souls that are wandering, there's specific reasons why they wander, and we need to make sure, obviously, everything in our power that we don't allow the souls to wander. But if the soul ends up possessing a person, we have to also, we have to then create. Now, the people who purposely allow souls to possess them, I'm not talking about them right there are people who not purposely souls possess them. They need to get into what we call a strong 
spiritual space. That strong spiritual space, for example, the Rebbe told this woman that she needs to keep kosher very strictly. So what, what, the way we do it, our tradition, according to Kabbalah, is you take on a mitzvah that is very difficult for you, and you do it perfectly. And that mitzvah creates the force field to get rid of the soul. That is, again, there's some people who have to go through that. It's the, usually, it's, you have to attack the mitzvah that is most difficult for the person to do. The one that bothers them more than any other one, and then the soul leaves. Why? Because there's a certain attachment between that particular mitzvah and that soul that's possessing them. I'm going to leave it at that now, if that's okay with you. I'm not going to go any further. Yes. Like, if the master soul can, you know, guide you into, you know, resolve your, your problem, mm-hmm. like how can we connect with that master soul? How can we connect with that master soul? Yeah. Um, okay, it's a very good question. So, I don't know if I have enough time, but I thought maybe what I would do tonight as part of this interesting experiment is um, I would... Um, I would do, so basically, remember how we spoke about last week that every single hour has a certain planet associated with it and every single day has a certain planet associated with it. That also works within particular individuals. So the day you were born, the hour you were born, and your birthday all together create a particular situation, a certain scenario. I can't do everybody, but I will start right now just to give you... So... Yes, so, hmm? <laughs> let me start off, okay, uh, I'll, I'll do a few people, I just wanted to show you how this works, this is the last part of my talk tonight, so Sharon, you said you don't, you don't mind? You were born on Saturday, Saturn, right, so that's an S, yeah, what else? 442 AM. 442, anyone remember? What's the four? Oh, we don't have the four, so the four is a six, it's a moon, it's an SM. So we're going to SM. What was the day? The 29th. Of? October. The Jewish day? 13th. What year? I can't Okay, well, you said that you wanted to... Huh? Okay. Um, 13th of SM. I, I will explain to you how I... Do. I'm, I'm going to do it for you now, but I'm not going to... What? Is that right? What? What's five? Fifty-five. You said? Oh, sorry. Five is um. Is ten fifteen? Okay. So it's three is four. It's eleven. S M is twenty seven nineteen ninety one is five seven is four. Okay. It's six Okay. Sorry, I'll explain to you a different time how I do the whole calculation. So based on so we can we Based on the mazal, we can see the entire story of the person. Now, remember, 
We don't tell the future. We just use it to explain the various character traits. What? You did it wrong, I'm sorry. Why? It's the 10th month, not the 11th month. What do you mean? The 29th month is 2110. Is what? Is October? Yeah. Oh, 11, I was thinking of Cheshvan. Yeah. So, I, so let, me just, yeah. let me just redo the whole calculation. I'm make sure that I'm right. Sorry. Um, that is right. Thank you for, yeah, I was right. I must have, I, I, I made the calculation correctly. Huh? What? I, I must have incorrectly made it correctly. Um, is it okay if I, if I talk about your particular, you're, you're an open book? You sure? Okay. If anybody else wants to be uh, an example afterwards, you want to hear negative traits or positive traits? Negative traits. Okay. Negative traits. The reason I'm asking, not because I want to know my characteristics, I thought you were talking about hours. Like when you see this, you know, the specific hours that resonate yeah. with people. Yeah, your Saturn moon. Yeah. Yeah, it's a whole, pro- it's a whole formula. And, and for Jewish numerology, it's the only one that does a complete full cycle. It's a full cycle, both based on the day of the week, the hour, the day of the, that, based on the Jewish calendar, and we use the solar and the lunar calendar both. We use the entire, the entire thing, everything. So we really, within that we can describe. So, um, so you said you want the negative traits? So the negative traits are, um, yeah, I, I think maybe I should tell you later. But I'll tell you, I will tell you about your positive traits. Can I say that in public? Okay, no problem. Anyone want to be? I'm concerned. Huh? You're concerned? No, no, my time. You want to do yours? You know what time you're born. I have to be able to know. Is it evening, morning? Okay. While you're doing, yeah? Uh, I'm born at uh, 1707. Okay. Oh, sorry, 507 p.m. 507 p.m.? Yeah. Oh, very interesting. Okay. What day of the week? Uh, Wednesday. Wednesday is uh, Venus, right? No, Mercury. Mercury. You're an MM. What's what's uh? Five December. Yeah. Ninety. Ninety. Yeah. Jewish. Nineteen. Nineteen. Oh my gosh. Uh... Nineteen of three. Um, five, seven, five, zero. Okay, let's try this out. Five and seven is, uh, six, eight, nine, 18. Four is nine, six, 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 nine. 
And that is a... It's 57.51, Yeah. Oh, it's 5751, right. So that makes it 52. And 12. 12 into 3. And 2 into 9. Okay. Got it. Can I say it publicly? Yeah, You sure? Okay. She said I could. I'm asking for... So, by the way, what I'm doing here is the process of what's called Kabbalistic numerology, using the day of the week, the time, the solar cycle, and the lunar cycle, we are able to talk about, and I will not predict anything, but only talk about various character traits that a person is prone to. The reason why I'm talking about these character traits is for to know yourself in order to be able to move forward if you have a particular blockage. So the purpose is not to say this is who you are and there's, no, there's nothing else. There are positive elements that are innate in a person and there are negative elements that are innate in a person. So, you want the positive or the negative? A bit of both. Okay. So, people that have this particular trait, they exude depths and charisma based on their heartfelt trust and spirit working through them. With their balance, compassionate wisdom, they've also learned to trust spirit in the form of other people and the form of life circumstances, which no matter how pleasurable or difficult, they experience as teachings. Although their needs are often met, even in adversity, they feel thankful for the lessons they receive. They make natural leaders who teach by example, committed to service, and expressing universal wisdom rather than rigid opinions, which they don't like. They help inspire others through their integrity and their attunement to higher laws, and they are natural leaders who teach by example, maintaining a feeling, connection of a higher will than them, they effectively serve others. Now, the negative side. How did I do? Let's see, let's see the negative side. Deluded preachers and eternal seekers. These individuals center the world around particular teaching, method, or religion, or philosophy. Quiet fanatics. They live according to the dictates or opinions of others and act as if their own opinions were sacred. Others who don't trust themselves may follow or admire such individuals, mistaking strong opinions for spiritual authority. Deep down, these people feel lonely and cut off from the world and from true inspiration in their lives because they trust their mind over their hearts. They fear and eventually attract betrayal by others, even by themselves. How do we do? (laughs) So, you're going to find over the course of your life, there'll be negative elements and positive elements of your life. And you can see where you fit into the various elements of your life based on the positive or negative elements. Yes. Now, how do you see the difference between someone that's born at the same time, same day, and two opposite continents? No, it's going to be. It's not going to be. It's going to be the same thing. No. You're saying someone who's literally born the same minute as her. Same, Same day, same time, but obviously. That time is a different time than it is, let's say, in Asia versus. Okay, so if someone was born in Asia, it would be different. Be different. It would be a different lunar. Yeah, a lunar. Have... The lunar cycle will be different there. So how do you? I know she was born here. Okay. 
So, oh, you're using in that app. Yeah. Whatever that is. Okay, you're little, little No, no, it's not my app. I just brought up, I, did, I, I just brought up the, 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 the no, this, this is stuff I wrote. No, I, but when you say you affect a specific location. Yeah, based on the location here, I can okay. see okay. Where, where, where the logo is. She's a, she's a moon Mercury. It also has certain flexions. So I'm going to, based on the moon Mercury, I actually, I, why, what's very important about moon people? Moon people, we don't use their solar cycle. We only use their lunar cycle. Just as an example. Sun people, we don't, we don't use their, their lunar cycle, only their, so sun is Sunday. Um, and moon is also going to be, the moon is the, the beginning of the evening. And the... So, when, for example, when she was born, and so, or the beginning of the morning. So this is all, just giving you an example of how much is out there. Again, the entire purpose of this is kind of expose you to all these different, really interesting elements of uh, Kabbalistic literature and idea. Uh, and then we're going to continue through this. You know, for the, we, have, we have, this is week two of six, and uh, we're going to continue going through various elements. We're going to talk about um, deeper reality. We're going to go to the next level of this. Then we're going to talk about the soul, the afterlife, and later reincarnation. Four more classes. That, uh, that wraps up my official talk. I'm here for questions, comments, death threats, you name it. Huh? Yeah, sure. What is it? By the way, if I don't do yours here, you're welcome to send me a private message and I'll do it for you. I know a lot of people don't want to do it publicly. And, uh, you know, I, I, give, me a, give me a few minutes we'll, and I'll, I'll do it soon. I have to just do a, the, the analytics of it. Good? Okay, next week, same time, same channel.